What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 15 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ali Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose land this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode. In this episode, we're talking to four different guests as we explore imaginative education. Our first guest, Julian Judson, is the current powerhouse behind Imaginative Ed. She's a member of the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University and co-directs the Imaginative Educational Research Group, the IERG. Her research, writing and teaching are primarily concerned with the role of imagination in all learning. Kieran Egan is the originator of the theory that underpins imaginative education. He is currently an emeritus professor of the Faculty of Education, Simon Fraser University. His academic interests have been in how we, as species and individually, have come to make sense of our experience and the world around us. Kieran writes that one aspect of his endless and hopeless task has been a recognition that the imagination plays a crucial role in both these related processes. And he's explored some features of this role with regard to current forms of education. Complementing Gillian and Kieran's contribution to the discussion, we have two classroom teachers who have experience with imaginative ed, Krista and Clayton. Krista Rawlings is a grade 6 teacher at KB Woodward Elementary School in Surrey, British Columbia. She has been implementing imaginative ed in her classroom for several years and runs the Learning in Depth program at her school. Clayton Stevens is a grade 4 teacher, also in British Columbia, and recently graduated from the Imaginative Education Master's program at Simon Fraser University. He is a mentor in the online graduate certificate program in imaginative ed. Before we enter the world of imaginative education, I just wanted to remind listeners that I'm now putting out a Friday email to summarise all the fantastic articles on teaching and learning that I've come across in the previous week. Last week's email shared an article on learning from failures, a guide to revision strategies for all learners, an article on how prompting students to create analogies can boost transfer, and a whole heap more. You can sign up for this weekly education digest at ollilovell.com. It was a pleasure to have Gillian, Kieran, Krista and Clayton on the show, and I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 15 of the ERRR on imaginative education. Welcome everybody, our four guests today, to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. Thanks, Kieran. You got my back. <laughs> All right. The first question we usually ask people when they come in to the ERRR is if you're at a party and someone says hi, you know, hi, for example, hi, Kieran, what is it that you do? Kieran, what's your answer? As little as possible. And then I have another drink. <laughs> but mainly I'm retired, but I suppose I've been playing around thinking about education for a while. Cool. That's, that's a great answer. And then I guess if, if they ask you, can you tell me a little bit more, Kieran? What, what do you generally say then? How long have you got? <laughs> about, an, about an hour and a half. Well, I've been concerned. I had an education in which I spent most of my time either afraid or bored. And that's not, seems to me, a great combination. Children these days seem to be less 
less afraid in schools, but they do seem to be bored a lot of the time, except in the classes of the people who are here today. But when I talk to a lot of kids, they, they are not excited by their schooling a lot. So I just, uh, I guess, wanted to try to make life a little bit easier for as many kids as possible, really. Fantastic. Julian, if you're at a party and someone says, hi, Julian, what is it that you do? What's your answer? First of all, I'm just so excited to be at a party because I don't have much of a social life. <laughs> so Kieran's retired and I'm just tired, I think. <laughs> I would say what I do is I, I teach a lot about imagination, imagination's role in learning. And I have a great pleasure of working with teachers and working at Simon Fraser University in our online programs and our master's programs all about the imagination's role in learning. I'm also really interested in the imagination's role in ecological understanding, and now increasingly the role of imagination in educational leadership. So really all facets of it. And I like to write, so I write a lot, books, articles, that kind of thing. And by now the person has walked away and talked to somebody else. So <laughs> that's me. Got it, thanks, Julian. Krista, if you're at a party and someone says, what is it that you do, what's your answer? I teach grade six and an inner city school in Surrey, BC, and we do a lot of imaginative ed in our classroom, and we have LID, learning in depth in our school, and it's very exciting. Cool. And Clayton, what is it that you do? I teach grade four. That's the easy answer. Cool. Keep it, keeping it short and sweet. Thank you. All right. Well, the first question I had penned for today's interview was about, about a paper that Kieran published back in 2001, which was entitled, Why Education is So Difficult and Contentious. And in a recent Voice Ed podcast, Clayton mentioned that this was very influential on him. And I also found the thesis of this paper to be quite interesting. In many ways, the paper goes some way to talk to answering the question, what is the purpose of education? And hints at what should the purpose of education be? So I was wondering if Kieran right now, you'd be happy to answer those two questions. What is the purpose of education? Education, when we think of education, we tend to think of the system of education. So we think of schools and universities and our experience. And in one sense, it has a lot of purposes, different purposes, and they, for different people, they overlap a lot. And I think in the article, I tried to roughly break down the set of purposes into three big categories. And as far as most people seem to think of them today, and one of the purposes is that we bring up kids to get by in a society like the one they're going to grow up into. So we teach them a bunch of skills and values and ideas and stuff that they're going to need to get a good job and things like that. So that makes up for most people a central purpose of education. For other people, they would add also, for a few people at least, the, the central purpose is essentially one of teaching kids things that will help them to understand the way the world actually is, the truth about reality and Plato's language. That is, so, and that's different. With the first idea, that is the socializing idea, you put into the curriculum everything you want to justify in terms of so, its social purpose, its value for having a job, helping society, fitting into society, things like that. The second idea, this, this platonic one about teaching the truth about reality, is what today we tend to call academic. That is, we teach people a bunch of stuff, often with very little concern about its practical value, 
and much more concerned about what good it does to the mind of the student. So everybody still thinks we should do some of that. So we teach them some art and literature and things like that that have at one level no practical value, but it's good for us. So that's the second big idea. And a lot of everybody believes some feature of that is important. And there's a third idea <clears throat> that is also around that's, I guess, associated but more with Rousseau. And that is that the trick of education is to help fulfill the individual potential of each child. Now, the trouble with those three big ideas is that everybody holds them in different degrees. That is, some people think the socializing is more important. Some people think the academic stuff's more important. Some people think the individual development stuff is more important. And the thing is that all of them are a part of what people mean by education. It's just they mean them in different degrees, which is why people argue all the time. And that's basically what most arguments in education are about. Which one of these do you prefer and how much? Got it. And, and you feel in, in the article, you also outlined in quite a bit of detail how these three goals of education are intention and actually contradict each other. And in, in my understanding, that was why you suggested education continues to be so difficult and contentious. So could you maybe tell us how maybe these three goals are actually intention and contradict each other? Well, they... I mean, well, you can see that all day long. You know, and if ever you have an argument about education or see one in the papers or the prayer or the on television, you've got people who want to say, for example, we need to get the basics more firmly taught and we not give kids the skills they need to get jobs. And other people say, well, we should teach children to learn how to learn. We should help them to explore. We should get them to be free and think, you know, for themselves. So these are, these are not utterly incompatible because, of course, in some degree, you can do all of these kinds of things. At least we try to like to think so. But the trouble is, the more time you spend on any one of them, the harder it is to do the other. And there are, the incompatibilities run, I think, quite deeply the more you look at how these work. And indeed, each one of those ideas has some dangerous problems attached to it. So the more you socialized kids, the more you move towards a more fascist notion of education. You teach them to fit into the society. The more you do the academic stuff or the development stuff, the more you want to make them critical and, and skeptical about the society that they're a part of. So these things, you, you can't teach somebody to fit into a society and be skeptical of it at the same time equally well. So those kinds of, so the more deeply you go into it, the more you see that these, these arguments that we see constantly in education and the way we identify people, some is more you know, conservative and some is more traditional, some is more progressive. And the, these are undergirded by the positions or the presuppositions people have about these fundamental ideas, even if they never articulate them as such. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, something in my throat. <clears throat> I think it's the rest of my throat. Come on. <laughs> All right. At this point, I'd be quite interested, before we go into what the purpose of education should be, as you proposed in some of your books and writings, I was wondering, Krista and Clayton and, and Gillian, before you came to imaginative education and the work of Kieran Egan, which of the three, or what, what do you, would you say was your balance of your understanding of the goals of education in relation to these three, these three contrasting goals? So we might start with Krista. Say the socialization part. 
just being a good girl who likes to follow all the rules, you know. But as I was thinking more about it, the Rousseauian part kind of spoke to me, but I didn't know how to get to that point. A little bit of those two ideals. Okay, cool. What about you, Clayton? I think that I was doing all three, but just unaware that they were contradicting each other at the time. So as Kieran was saying, Dr. Egan was saying, some things were very academic, while at the same time you were trying to socialize them. And I could see that there was a disconnect at the time. I just couldn't put my finger on it. Kieran mm. articulated it for you. Sure. And Julian, how about you? Well, my years before I learned about imaginative education were in a high school. I taught in high school for seven years before I was teaching at university level. And I can say for sure that I was shamefully unreflective in my practice. I just sort of did my thing. But if I look about the thing that really charged me up, and it might be why I really like resonate with the imaginative education approach, is that I... I adored certain aspects of the subject matter I was teaching. I was so keen on aspects of geography and history, and it didn't really matter to me if the kids in downtown Langley would ever experience this particular work of art or really ever spend a summer studying soil. But I was fascinated with those things, and I felt like they could be too. So there's that aspect of the idea that knowledge is just good for our minds and having an emotional connection is something that teachers can uh, can afford students. I do know that those lessons that I was able to shape before learning about IE in ways that, you know, I was dead keen to do with the students, they were too. So I think as any teacher does, I, I did what I needed to socializing. I always afford students the opportunity to individually grow. But I was really passionate about connecting kids and charging them up about knowledge itself. Cool. So Kieran, if we aren't supposed to be, or if it's contrary to our goals in order to aim to socialize, help our students be critical thinkers and know a lot about knowledge, and also to develop as humans, what should we be trying to do in education? Well, we should be trying to do all of those things, obviously, in some way. I think our problem is that once we make them the focus, we run into problems. And the way I've tried to refocus the ways we think about it would be to suggest that what's happened to human beings, you know, in our development from earliest days is that people have invented tools to help them think with, deal with the world. In our cultural history, we've developed linguistic tools. We've become very articulate over the centuries and millennia when we've invented sciences and mathematics and all these kinds of things. Each of them delivers us tools to help us better understand the world around us. And I suppose, and somebody once said, all these can help us to have life and have it more abundantly. So it's that trick of having the most abundant intellectual and cultural and physical life that we can. And one of the ways you can think about education is what we've got is this massive accumulation of tools to think with, tools to work with, that have been delivered to us by our cultural history. And the trick of education is to maximize those tools for each individual child as fully as possible. And by pure chance, <laughs> by luck, or at least by intention, 
you will also incidentally in that process achieve the socializing aims, the academic aims, and the personal development aims. They come along with maximizing for each individual child the cultural cognitive tools that are available to them. So it's a matter of trying to rethink the ways in which we shape what we aim to do in a classroom. So instead of thinking of, I'm going to achieve, um, you know, teach them some geography because it's relevant to them or history because it's relevant to them today, you think instead about, you know, what, what history will help them and geography will help them more fully develop the toolkit that's available for human beings to make sense of their past. Anyway, just at some level, um, unless until we get down to the nitty-gritty, but in a very, very general way, it might sound like, oh, this is all you know, just theoretical babble. But the theoretical babble has some very straightforward, detailed, practical implications. And that's, I guess, what we will explore as we go on. Indeed. So in your, in your book, The Educated Mind, you kind of break these cognitive tools into groups under five what you call kinds of understandings. Those kinds of understandings are somatic, mythic, romantic, philosophic, and ironic. So I thought to kind of reify things a little bit for listeners and for the, the people here today, I thought it might be helpful for us to step through each of those understandings, hear a little bit about the cognitive tools that are associated with them, and maybe from some of the teachers that we've got on today, hear about how these tools are, have been used and can be used in the classroom. So, Kieran, if you, you want to start us off with somatic understanding, could you take us a little bit more in depth into that? Okay. I suppose the one thing that I... What I tried to do was say that, you know, if you look at this toolkit, it's not that they come in, as Vygotsky suggested, because he was only casually interested in this. He says they come, you know, and he, he named a few. What I've been trying to do over a number of years is try to see that they come in, in these sets, as you said, they come clumped. We don't just pick them up randomly. We pick them up in particular sequ a sequence, more or less. And the, the first of them is somatic, simply because everybody's got a body. Somatic just means tools you've got when you've got a body. And the obvious ones are the senses. But there are some others that we get with a human body. You get, for example, a bunch of emotions. And we tend, well, we know that this is true, everybody. We all have an, every child in the classroom. And the trouble is when you, when you, when you mention emotions as central to imaginative education, people imagine that somehow all day long, the kids have got to be ecstatic in the classroom or weeping in tears or passionate about something. But it's just to try to point out that all the knowledge in the curriculum is human knowledge and it has human dimensions. And a number of these are invariably, to some degree, emotional. And it doesn't mean massive passionate outbursts. It just means that there is a flavor to knowledge that we need to attend to, that we too often simply ignore. So that's one, one of the bits of the toolkit that comes along with the somatic. Another is that we're a humorous animal. We're an animal that loves jokes. And you see this in the baby, it's a part of what comes, and we tend to, again to ignore that and suppress it in the classroom. Unless we, you know, we make a joke, that's fine, then let's get on with the work. But I think the, there's something about humor that needs to be more centrally a part of what we do in education. We're also an animal that, whose body brings along with it 
a very peculiar way of patterning. We make patterns and we derive meanings from those patterns. And you see it as you start playing with babies. You know, you, you, can, you can make a game out of almost any arbitrary set of movements by you know, setting up something the second or third time you do it, the baby will respond. And we are a peculiar animal and that these repetitions of patterns, we search constantly for meaning in them. And I think all the stuff in the curriculum is pattern rich. And one of the tricks, again, is to find the humor, the emotions, the patterns that are a part of it. It will enable us. And these don't go away. They are the foundations on which all our schooling is going to build. So the more we attend to these things, the more we can be systematic about it, the more likely we are to be able to engage children, make the world meaningful to them. So that's somatic understanding. And, and you mentioned that in our Western society, generally that's the kind of cognitive, set of cognitive tools that are preferenced for individuals between birth and about two years old. Also in your book, you outlined the next one is between about two and eight, and that's mythic understanding. And I thought either Krista or Clayton might like to tell us a little bit about mythic understanding. Oh, Clayton's giving me a wave to say he's going to tell us about it. What cognitive tools are associated with mythic understanding and how have you used them in your classroom? Okay, so mythic understanding is more the time of life when students are perceiving the world best through oral tools. So it's generally framed at a time when children are talking, but not yet kind of reading well, I guess. At this time, they haven't had their minds shaped by the organizational structure of reading. And so they best engage with, remember, and have their imagination stimulated by tools that are steeped in oral language. So as Dr. Egan was saying, it's a foundation, those somatic tools. So many of the tools in the mythic toolkit are similar to the somatic toolkit and build upon them. However, instead of just engaging the senses, they now engage the language as well. So for example, in the somatic toolkit, children would use, as Dr. Egan said, the tool of rhythm and beat to interact. And so in the mythic toolkit, they would then engage well with rhyme and rhythm in language instead of just physically. So in one, the baby would be clapping his hands along with mommy. And in the mythic one, he is engaged with bedtime nursery rhyme or a song with mommy instead. So I use this a lot in my own classroom, even though I teach grade four. If I want students to remember something really well, then a song is a great way to go. I just recently showed a video to my class of the song how to make a proper paragraph is the name of the song. And it goes like, it starts with the topic sentence. It starts with the main idea. And then it kind of continues like that. Great. And while it's silly and the students laugh at it, they remember it. And I caught a few of them singing the song while they were writing. Mm. So that's one. Should I keep going? Go on, please. Okay. So the next kind of one in the mythic tool set is and the same kind of in the somatic toolkit is the humor, as Dr. Egan was saying. So large gestures on the face or daddy getting hit in the groin with a football are what is funny to a toddler. But then in the mythic jokes, so the stuff that's happening with language is, and that are unexpected are what are funny instead. So such as Oliver, knock, knock. Who's there? Ash. Ash who? type. <laughs> Classic. Oh, so it's terrible. It's a terrible joke. But students operating in this tool set, they love jokes like this. 
and they interact really well with them. And you often see students telling each other jokes like this on the side. And it also kind of somewhat connects to metaphor, which is another tool that students are using in this mindset. And they find well-constructed metaphors just as humorous and just as thought-provoking. So an example of that in classrooms, again, you can you could have a poster up where you can write or students can find and write jokes or metaphors about whatever it is that you're learning. I remember there was a teacher that I subbed for a long time ago who was studying weather with his class. And he had a large cloud set up like a mobile that you would have over a, a crib. And during the unit, students collected weather idioms to attach to it. Something like, it's raining cats and dogs or there's a silver lining to every great cloud. And that was a really effective way, I thought, to teach the play of language, idioms, and to engage the students' imagination. Anyway, should I move on? Cool. Play? Yeah, sure. Yeah? All right, so play, of course, follows the somatic as well. So play as a tool for the students in the mythic mindset I feel it's, do I really have to say anything? It's already kind of well-established in education. No one is gonna argue that students don't need time to play. People seem to argue for it more than ever these days. And it's often through this play that students are using that tool of play to make sense of the world. So they, they act out situations that they've seen. Like in grade one classrooms during centers, it's often you're gonna find the students that are playing teacher or they make a zoo out of blocks after having visited the zoo last week. They don't really create something out of nowhere. It's kind of this very Vygotskyan theory where they see something happen and then they reenact it. And by reenacting it, it's kind of a way for them to understand it for themselves more and to internalize it, hence the tool. So often in classrooms, this play can be used really well if you're going to lead students to play about what it is that you're teaching them. So a lot of kindergartens, grade ones, have time for centers. And if the kindergarten is doing a unit on dinosaurs, what better way are you going to get them to learn about dinosaurs than just giving them a box of dinosaurs that you're learning about? So if you're learning about triceratops, have one in there. If you're learning about the brachiosaurus, have one in there. And hopefully, you know, that's going to transfer to when they're playing. Another popular idea right now in Surrey is it comes from the Opal School in Portland, and it's called Story Workshop. Is it popular there in Australia too? Not familiar with it. No, never heard of it. Maybe I'm, I'm, a, I'm a secondary teacher though, so it's originally Scottish. Okay. Oh, was it? Yeah. Anyway, where the students are encouraged to play, and then they generate a story with materials before they try writing it. So the play is meant to bridge the gap between from playing to beginning to write. So using the tool of play to engage them with written literacy. Got it. I feel like quite potentially quite a few listeners at the moment who teach primary school will be thinking, but I already do all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I already already have rhymes. I already play with my students. Mm -hmm. For you, and I'm sure you did many of these things before you started engaging with imaginative education as well. So for you, Clayton, what has the IE framework and, and, and the work of, you know, Kieran and Gillian added to the way that you see your classroom and the activities you do within it. Very nice in that I can cull all the activities which are not going to be effective for the students and in engaging them with their imagination using the cognitive tools. So I 
I know later on you wanted to talk about some of the things that we were noticing that we were doing wrong. And I'll save that. But just now, I find it's much easier to decide what it is that I want to be doing with the class. So, for example, one of the grade seven teachers said to me, oh, you should read this book with your class. I have grade fours, right? Like they're just beginning kind of to be romantic mythic. And it was this book of I am, I forget what it's called. I am, it's that girl who was shot or something. I am Malala. I am Malala. I'm sorry. Anyway, and she was like, this would be a great book for your class to do. And immediately with the framework of IE, I knew, nope, no, it's not going to be a good book to do with my class. Like this is a very philosophic book. It's about engaging with the story of this one girl. And I have students that are mostly operating within a mythic framework. I can tell they are going to check out as I read this book. And now I know why. Instead, right now I'm reading my side of the mountain, which is way more exciting for them because it engages with the idea of living off in the wilderness by yourself. Is that the one based in the cat skills? Uh, yeah, 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 that one, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that book. I loved that when I was a kid. Thanks, Dave Clayton. So, so that was Mythic from about two days. I have more tools too, if you want. All right, we, we might jump to the next one, but we'll, we'll, we'll see if we've got time to get back to it. Okay. So Romantic Understanding is the next one, which is usually from around 8 to 15 years. And I'm, I'm imagining that, Krista, you're going to tell us a little bit about this one. Uh, yeah, I teach grade 6. Jillian, did you want to say something before I... I was just going to pick up on the question about how does it different because you ask us later, what is a misconception about imaginative education? Yep. And that is the, the thing. Doing, throwing in some jokes and using play is different from the intentional creation of an imaginative <laughs> context for the units we're teaching. So I also really like this approach to teaching because I, I enjoy doing role play with my students and they loved it. But when I'm teaching about it now to secondary teachers, for example, I say, I'm going to be embedding those activities you know work well within an overarching story format. You're going to have an idea of how to evoke emotion, how you want the students to feel has to come first. Your own engagement has to come first. So it frustrates me when people say, oh, I use stories, I play games, I tell jokes, I do this, because they are missing the, the much broader teacher intentionality required for what we're after. So that's what I was going to say about what Clayton said and over to you, Krista. So I teach grade six and I've taught grade six and seven for my entire career. I'm finding using both the mythic and the romantic tools very helpful. I use both of them equally in my class. I have probably about eight kids who are learning English right now. So using the mythic is really helpful for them but everybody in the class enjoys it. And, and we get a lot of work done because we're using these tools and everybody's engaged, including me, which is most important. <laughs> so I'm just gonna start talking about how I kind of roll through. I usually start with the narrative. So I usually talk about the guy who invented the thing or discovered the thing or did an amazing thing with that thing. It's about the person, right? Giving a face to the concept automatically begins the process of emotional engagement, right? So for example, with my lessons on place value, which can be so dull and dry, I've turned it all around. It's my most, I love to teach that one. So for place value, I talk about Archimedes and how he's sitting on the sand one day and picks up a handful of sand and thinks about how many grains of sand can fit into the universe. 
How many are there? And by the way, he comes up with a number. It's a vigatillion, which is 10 to the power of 63, right? Or I talk about Edward Kasner and his nephew who decides to name the number Google and then comes up with a Googleplex. And this little kid who's nine years old decides that Googleplex is one with as many zeros behind it until your arm gets tired, right? <laughs> so creating these connections with people is how I get myself engaged in the topic and in turn gets the kids engaged. And then I move on to, which kind of rolls into humanization of, of meaning and things like that. And then the heroic quality is the second most important one when I'm planning my unit. So what is heroic about the novel? What is heroic about the mathematical topic or concept? What's heroic about the scientific theory? So we're doing a novel study this year called Code Talker about uh, Navajos during World War II. And after reading the book, the thing that popped out to me is balance. That was the heroic quality of this whole book. So this time I tell the kids, you're going to look for balance. Balance is what makes this book so amazing. And they found so many opportunities to explain balance, more than I ever came up with. Giving them, giving a novel, giving a concept, any of that stuff, a heroic quality really focuses your planning, but it also focuses the student and their learning. What else have I got? Oh, can't forget this. Literate eye, which is any graphic organizers, charts, graphs, timelines, lists. I, I love timelines and I have them all over the place in my classroom and the kids go for it too, because it gives them an understanding of how they fit into the story of whatever it is we're doing. So for example, years ago, I'm talking about the idea of Alfred Wagner, who comes up with plate tectonics theory and how he's laughed off the scientific world. And one of my kids is goofing around writing something on the whiteboard, making me crazy. I'm like, what is he doing? Why? I'm trying to read this. He's up there writing something. On the it turns out he's writing a timeline as I'm speaking, right? So his way, I mean, he wasn't doing it. <laughs> he did it. And his way of understanding the story was to go and follow this timeline. And he was doing it for everybody on the whiteboard, hmm. right? Let's see. And collections of sets. Now, I know every single one of you had a collection of something when you were 11 years old, right? Mine is Coast Guard. Somebody has a collection and getting all the things together, finally having a complete set feels so good. Mm. And then you have to find something else to collect, right? Because you want that feeling. Well, you can do that in class as well. You're collecting the types of minerals. You're collecting the, the scientific theories. You're collecting, we do uh, trading cards in my class. So for example, for studying early humans, each child has a trading card that they make for their particular early human or scientist that has something to do with early humans. And we make 30 copies. And then we sit around in a, in a room and you present your trading card. And anybody else in the room who has some connection to that card gets to collect your card too. So we do this 30 times. And by the end, you should have a collection of 30 different cards. And boy, those kids who don't get all 30 have to justify <laughs> why their, their particular card connects to someone else's. And so it's, it's a really great way to have, a, have an interesting discussion, have the connections flying around. It's a lot of fun and the kids really enjoy it. That's a, that's a really interesting approach. So that actually allows you 
while you're working with these trading cards to for the students to identify key components of the concept or the person and then to explicitly like scaffold their discussions of connections between concepts as you as you trade the cards. Yeah, it's fantastic. They love it. It used to take an hour and a half and now I've done it for years and now it takes all day, sometimes two days to do this particular discussion and the kids are right into it. And then they, they don't want to let them go. I ask them for their packages to use as examples when I'm talking about this to other teachers and they refuse to give them to me because it's their collection, right? They don't want to share it. Cool. Another big one for this age group is extremes or limits. And I think Clayton has some neat extremes with shrimp or something, don't you? Or toads or something? Yeah. 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 Uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I put you on the hook. <laughs> So who doesn't want to learn about the grossest thing, the tallest thing, the biggest thing, the smallest thing? When I do place value, I, I bring in some binary opposites from Mythic, but I also talk about infinite numbers, the biggest, the biggest that there are, and finite numbers, right? And then I talk about infinite numbers that are very, very tiny, like pi. And the kids are like, no, that can't be tiny. And so, No, it's three. It's only three. It's not even four. So, and then I talk about Vigintillion, right, from Archimedes, or the Millionillion, which is a 10 with 3,000 and three zeros behind it. And the kids want to know how big that is. They want to feel it. So I had this receipt tape, you know, the rolls of receipt tape. And one, of, one group of boys decided they were going to write a Millionillion, which is a one with 3,000 and three zeros behind it. And they did. And every once in a while, I'll pull it out and I'll roll it out while I'm teaching my place value. And then the girls got cheeky and decided they wanted to find out how far they could go with pi. And they got to 4,000 and something numbers behind the decimal place. And then every year we build on it a little more. So I've got that too. And I roll that out every time we talk about pi. And it's a lot of fun. And I get excited about it. And so do they. So extremes and limits is lots of fun. Fantastic. I it's awesome to have teachers as well being able to talk about exactly what you're doing and, and, and kind of highlight all these all these concepts and cognitive tools with examples from your classroom. Okay. So, Julian, I thought you might like to talk a little bit more about or talk, tell us about philosophic understanding. Usually from around 50, 15 to 22 years old is when we generally see these the cognitive tools in this kind of understanding being used the most. And I would anticipate that that's kind of the age at which some of your graduate students or some of the students that you've taught in the past are around. So could you tell us a bit, a little bit about philosophic understanding and how the cognitive tools of it can be used in the classroom? Hey, and I'm glad that you really sort of just tentatively attached ages to this as to the other kinds of understandings as well, because my understanding that Kieran was quite hesitant to put an age to any of these, because it has more to do with the kind of language you're using and your use of the language. So philosophic understanding has more to do when our students realize that for all of these extreme ideas and, and the, the mind-boggling Guinness Book of World Record details, all of these can also be explained and are represented in a world of theory. So if we're going to emphasize in our history teaching the battles and the, the most gruesome deaths and the weirdest ways people were moved around and the oddest inventions that transformed agriculture and, and the quirky people that made a difference, that is engaging on one level. But it's not going to satisfy the intellectual and emotional needs of a theoretical thinker. They'd be much more interested now in thinking about the concept of war 
rather than the biggest battles. So when you realize that there's abstract concepts, something Kieran called portmanteau concepts, hanger concepts, a big idea, society, government, truth, justice, these are really appealing for the theoretical thinker. Because now we have an imaginative idea that can explain all of these other details for us. What's particularly engaging is that if you are developing a sense of self and you're trying to figure out where you fit into the world, some of these theories help you figure out who you are. You're searching a, a sense of this is how the world works. So, for example, if you realize and you grasp onto this anthropocentric way we live our lives, then you might become quite appalled at the lack of, of value for animals. You might choose to become vegetarian or vegan because the theories that now drive your sense of agency and self are telling you that you are part of this process and you can make a difference. So your own sense of agency is, is engaged. In terms of my own teaching at SFU here, I always begin by looking for the large emotionally charged concept, my, my meta narrative, if you will, or my truth that we can explore. So for example, when I'm teaching a course on assessment in the classroom, I don't just explain ways of doing it. I, I shape it all around this notion of control. Because if we look historically at how and where evaluation and assessment practices come from, they do come out of a desire to predict and control human behavior. And there's theories that are linked to that, you know, structuralism, positivism, behaviorism, all these isms are theories that we play with and, and they don't sit well with each other. So we have anomalies and these anomalies generate more theories. And we're always playing towards a big idea. So in my assessment teaching, we're looking theoretically at the idea of control. When I teach about uh, curriculum theories, generally, sometimes my idea is development. When I teach about educational reform, we're exploring the notion of hope through theories of education. And so it offers a different form of engagement. It's very important that I mention, too, though, that I will not teach a course at the graduate level without including vivid imagery, games, drama, play, role play, dramatic tensions. We, we come with bodies. We use oral language and written language. Those are powerful tools that remain important for us. It's just I have more tools to choose from as a teacher of adults. Because the, the, the very prominent ones, I would be doing my students a disservice if I didn't engage them theoretically. But those other tools are really valuable as well. Right. So, when you talk about using, for example, in assessment, the idea of control, before you talked about not just using, not just using games in the, in the class, it's actually seeing games or thinking about how the games can play into these core concepts that are threads that run through your, your, your teaching or whatever. So, in terms of control, how did you embed that within this course on assessment? Well, it was, it was something I wanted them to feel. So, I think I remember introducing it using some romantic tools. We looked at some primary source documents of some of our earliest evaluators, you know, the big daddies of educational evaluation, Ralph Tyler and others. And we looked at the ways they described the actions of evaluating an assessment. And it, it didn't sit well. It didn't sit well with us. So it kind of tapped into teacher's sense of revolt because we're supposed to enable and allow students to grow in all these ways. And the way we were trying to control and predict what students learned and, 
And the assurance we put into and sort of the confidence we put into these very quantitative ways of assessing them, it just generated anomalies for our students. It generated feelings of discontent. So what ends up coming out in those conversations, conversations that are linked to real people with, with real stories, conversations that link to theory, is we come down to this idea that we try to enable assessment and evaluation to work freely, but we are controlling and we hope to control what students know. And we think we can control how they express their learning. We've come to a position now where we are much more able to acknowledge that there's more that we will never know than what we can actually grasp. And we need to engage students in their own assessment and evaluation. But we can start in a place where there was much more certainty that these instruments of assessment and evaluation could. Now, you might frame it differently if you were teaching that course. You might instead look at it in terms of power, or you might look at it in terms of, I don't know, capacity. But for me, I, it kept coming back to control. And at the end of my course, because of course, I always determine, reflect how it went, I, I noticed that was where the students brought it as well in conversation. So if I teach a course, and then at the end, it doesn't seem my some of the ideas I wanted to evoke don't seem to be ones the students are expanding on their own, then I didn't maybe choose the greatest emotional idea. We're, we're not determining what they think at the end of the day. We're giving them an emotional handle. And from there, they can go off in many other directions. I hope that was a better answer. Yeah, that helps. So the final understanding or the final kind of understanding that you outline in your book, Kieran, is ironic and you say that generally that's with older people and often many people if i recall correctly you suggest that some people in in many societies don't ever get to an ironic understanding not that it's the peak but just that it's a different kind of understanding and i would imagine that with many of your graduate students for example you're helping to try to get them to exercise the cognitive tools associated with ironic understanding so i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about ironic understanding and how you try to foster those cognitive tools and support and stimulate them within your students i think Gillian puts it very well flexibility to use all of the tools so ironic understanding is really not other than a freedom from the constraints that go with some of the other toolkits you know the philosophic you get tied into particular theories and the ironic is a freedom from that, and then the freedom also to use all of the others. So it just gives you a, an ease at marshalling more of the toolkits that are available to us and knowing maybe which ones might work better at different times for different purposes with different people. So it's just that, that, that so there's, nothing, there's nothing special about ironic and understanding except this, this release, and, and it's not... Not even when you say older people. I mean, I have a grandson who's pretty ironic. And these things arrive not so much from some extremely complicated academic study. It's more a function of the ways in which you learn to talk and, and interact with people. But some people begin to recognize quite early that, that there's a sense of irony that enriches one's appreciation of everything. And it's that enriched appreciation, I think, and seeing the many dimensions of the world around us and of other people that allows you to have a much richer experience of the world around you and the people you interact with. And I think that's, in some sense, uh, the main uh, characteristic of ironic understanding. 
I was wondering if you could kind of color this a little bit more by by doing a bit of a contrast for us. I was wondering what it would look like for someone to come to this framework that you've developed with a philosophic understanding and in contrast, what it would look like for someone to come to this framework that you've developed with an ironic understanding. Not sure it would be all that different and that, I mean, that looking at the framework, trying to make sense of it is in some sense a philosophic activity. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> any of these toolkits and you, you use the best one for the purpose. If indeed you're looking at a philosophic activity like you know the educational theory, then approaching it with a philosophic toolkit is probably one of the best ways to do it. The, the, the difference between that and the ironic one is that instead of, I suppose, uh, philosophically categorizing it in some relatively rigid way, the ironic allows you to, a bit more freedom to see that it's not, it's not some claim that is etched into the universe. It's just a way of trying to help us understand some of the things that are a part of our everyday world. And, and I think it's that added freedom, that added ability to see dimensions of activities and, and, and even theories that, that is what is distinctively ironic about our abilities to understand things. Julian has something to add here as well. Yeah, I think, Kieran, please correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will. But if, if we look at the theory in a philosophic lens, there is the fear that there'll be really misplaced certainty. I mean, the, the problem I know that our colleague, Dr. Waddington, talks about is his concern is that there's too much of the philosophic and it can lead to fundamentalism, the belief that this is the truth and, and I have all the answers I need. My philosophic understanding isn't our end goal. Our end goal is a more flexible and nuanced understanding. So I would consider the difference being a much stronger certainty, imaginative education, it's the perfect thing, it's the answer to all our educational woes, versus maybe it's the best approach we've got, I'm less secure, I'm less certain about it being the best, but I'm no less secure in my uses of its varied aspects. So that would be more of an ironic take on, on the theory. Yeah, I, I hope that's not different from anything I was saying, it's just you put it rather better. Great. I'd like to offer like a bit of a personal reflection here because reading The Educated Mind for me like catalyzed a real turning point in my life and the way that Kieran articulated philosophic understanding contrasted with ironic was a real eye opener for me. I spent probably the majority of my early 20s and my late teens probably very much in like I would say in environmentalism and any new information I came across I was trying to fit into a cohesive world model. And that led to a lot of frustrations and challenges for me because whenever I encountered new information, I was trying to incorporate it and often that information wouldn't fit. And so coming across this idea of an ironic understanding and being able to kind of sit with contradictions and reflexively apply different theories at different times really set me free from that challenge of integrating everything all the time. And it's kind of illustrated by one, one example. While I was reading your book here and I did, I did this course, which many people have probably heard of, it's called like Landmark. It's like about self-realization, actualization, and, you know, becoming a better person, whatever. A lot of people say it's a cult and there's a lot of the, those elements in it as well. But they present all these really strange kind of theories about the world and stuff. And I was reading Kieran's book in tandem with going to Landmark. And I know that if I hadn't have been reading your book in tandem with it, Kieran, I would have 
had my kind of scientific mind attacking all of the theories within the course and I wouldn't have actually been able to get anything out of it. But with the kind of backdrop of thinking about what would it mean to take an ironic understanding to this course, I was actually allowed to, I was actually enabled to pull a lot of value out of the course, even though I didn't find it to be log a logically consistent course whatsoever. So yeah, I just wanted to share that and to also thank you for, for writing this book, Kieran, because oh, yeah, it was, it was really valuable to me. Uh -huh. Before we open it up to, to questions about the kind of entire framework, I just wanted to quickly ask Kieran, how on earth did you come up with an education theory? I had nothing else to do. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they, they pay professors to sit around. Actually, I must admit, I'm more puzzled by what I see my colleagues doing. <laughs> Funny girl. I, see, I can't, I can't understand really when I look at what passes for the study of education in institutions and the kind of research that people do, I just get bewildered by the kinds of things that are studied. It seems to me if you're interested in education, these are just the kinds of questions that, you know, might be of interest. So it's just a matter of having not a lot to do because, you know, it's not a very, not a terribly onerous job and they, they reward you to sit around and scribble and, you know, write stuff down and publish it. So. I'm just bewildered that more people don't do the same kind of thing, really. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. There, there were a couple of questions. Thomas, you had one about evidence-based curling. You had about relevance versus emotions. Hello, I'm Tom. My question has to do with, I really, I, my response to Kieran's book, The Educated Mind, was very similar to what Ollie just said then. And I have found it to be extremely useful in focusing my year seven, year eight classes, more towards romantic understanding. I have though, whenever I mention that the whole theory in class though, and in schools, to, in order to try to get some of my colleagues to follow me in this way of looking at things, I'm often told, oh, well, what's the research basis of this? What's, you know, and, you know, we need to make sure we're doing everything that's, you know, gone through multiple studies and has all this evidence and, and so on. And, and I'm always a little bit stumped there. I'm just wondering what little tips have you got me that I can come back at them with in that regard? Yeah. Simply to ask them, what is the research base for what they're doing at the moment? You know, what's, what's the research base for teaching social studies? There isn't one. But the, a lot of these are value issues. Education is a value-ridden enterprise. And the kinds of tools that we've got available are a very limited value for dealing with these. Now, at the same time, having said that, if what, if, you, if what you want by the research is simply some studies that show that the kids perform better if they're using imagination than not, then we've got, we've got some of these kinds of things and you can you know, pass around articles and stuff. I must admit, none of that, I mean, I don't encourage that greatly because you know, if, if we're looking at a set of practices that, that make more sense, which is, I think, what we're doing, then you, you show them at work. And indeed, people want to know, did they work better? And we do have stuff that will show that. But it is, I think, it's better to take first the aggressive step of saying, what's the basis for what you're currently doing? Because, you know, on the whole, there isn't much. And, but we have mountains, mountains of educational research that will support almost anything you claim to want to do or have done or... I mean, I sympathize with the situation. We're asked that all the time. What's the research base 
is the way it runs typically in North America. And, and you can say, well, if you want some articles about you know, people doing it, here's some. But on the whole, what's the research base for what you're currently doing? And that usually is a good step to take. I don't know. I'm sure the other people would be better at answering this than me. I'm sure Gillian gets this as well. <laughs> no. I, I do and I don't because we're not looking at neuron firing in the brain. We're not, uh, we're not taking that dimension. We are working with teachers who universally notice that when their kids are engaged, they learn more, they remember more, and they tend to do better on their tests. So the teachers that do this, it just resonates with them. And those are the kinds of studies we do have. But Krista wanted to add something. Uh, yeah, so I've been at this school for a long time with a lot of, we have a really high turnover rate for staff. It's quite a stressful, big, challenging school. So I used to, when I first finished my master's, blather on about it all the time because I couldn't keep it to myself. It was so exciting. And a lot of them would just glaze over and not want to talk about it. And then, so I stopped talking about it. And then I started just doing what I do. And then the teachers would say, well, how come you're so relaxed in there? Why are you having such a good time? Why are the kids behaving so well? And I'd say, well, it's this imaginative education thing, but you don't want to know anything about that. <laughs> and then they'd come and ask me tidbits. What really got everybody on board, and not, I'm not, not everybody, what really got people interested in what I was doing was actually learning in depth rather than anything else. And learning in depth is a way I can get adults in the school and children to learn what the tools are and learn what they mean and learn how they can make your practice easier and more enjoyable. So that's how I do it. Leading by example. Well, there, there are other things we could say, but I'll, we, we could move on and talk about some other things, I guess. I recognize the difficulty. Definitely. All right. Over to Tom again. Sorry to come back to it. Sorry to come back to it. Just, it occurred to me when you were answering the last question. It's specifically the framework I'm interested in, like the kinds of understanding. That's the aspect, like when, when you go and you, you're in the classroom and you're putting these things into concrete activities that you're doing with the kids, it, it makes sense, okay? It, it makes sense to most of them. But when you try to explain them, explain to other teachers, why you've made some distinction between mythic understanding, romantic understanding, and so on, that's, that's the area they have the most difficulty sort of grasping and understanding where that's coming from, those, like, for example, the difference between mythic and romantic, I completely get it. I can, I can see that. But, I mean, I'm fascinated, Kieran, as to where you've got, where it came from to start with. There's such, because they're, they're really quite clear distinctions, and I find them really effective. But they, but to an outsider, they often seem like a collection of, I mean, not random things, but you know what I mean? The details that have gone into each kind of understanding is the, is the aspect I'm most interested in. And before you answer that, I just wanted to add on a subsidiary question, which is, I've noticed that in the, on the IE website, for example, I haven't seen a lot about the kinds of understanding. And the distinction, and I was wondering if because of this reason, that was a conscious decision. Are you speaking about ImagineEd or the IERG website? ImagineEd. Yeah, because I get the glaze, the glazed overlook. So my choice was to build the whole set of tools first. So I did the whole tips for imaginative educators, the whole tools of imagination series. 
So after building out the tools for Mythic, then I did a post about, hey, Mythic understanding. And then I did end up doing a couple of posts about how it's, if you put engagement first, then the, the, the language of kinds of understandings come out. I didn't foreground it because honestly, most of the people reading are not as aware of the theory as you are. And so they, they don't engage as much. I'm hoping the tips, the cognitive tools first will be a bit of a Trojan horse to the, the other language. That's as I, as I suspected, yeah. And I might add that the kinds of people we have least difficulty with are parents. <clears throat> and you, know, you could just uh, imagine parents tend to say, hey, that's exactly, our kids are just like that. You know, they change from this to that. And of course, a lot of it comes out of being a parent. You know, you wonder, why, am I, why is my nine-year-old daughter fascinated by Archie comics? Or why, why have the kids all started collecting stuff at this stage? So a lot of it was just a matter of trying to, and, and remembering, of course, you know. And why did I feel that way at that time? Why did I do these things? Why did the kids do that? So it's a matter of coalescing a lot of those ideas and building them on what I was already studying, which was cultural history. And my, my PhD, for example, was in the, the move from mythic to historical references to the past in the ancient Near East. And you might say, well, that's a bit strange, except that, of course, looking at the way historians initially try to refer to the past and the way myth users refer to the past, you see very different, different results. For the myth users, you get these bizarre stories, and suddenly you get these what we call scientific historical accounts. The, the effect is enormous, even though you don't may, maybe at the, a theoretical level see a great deal of difference going on. Anyway. I have a question. Oh, sorry, I'm Beth. I have a question which goes back to that idea of the purpose of education. And when I read that article, it kind of, it reminded me of this debate that had been playing out in Australia maybe three or four years ago when we had like the kind of left of center government, the labor government releasing this Australian curriculum or developing an Australian curriculum. And then you had the liberal government, which is like the more conservative government getting in power. And Christopher Pine, the education minister at the time launched a review and he got this guy called Kevin Donnelly to review the curriculum, which had been devised by, you know, thousands of people. And there was all this consultation involved. And then this one guy was, kind of asked to just go and look at it and find out whether it was adequate. And he set out in his review, he set out, you know, here are the purposes of education. It was quite similar to what you came up with. But his conclusion, which everyone knew would be his conclusion before he started, because he'd written about this before, was that, you know, the purpose of education that's been neglected is to be able to present to students, you know, the best, most valid pieces of knowledge or yeah, forms of knowledge that we have available to us. And for him that, you know, corresponded with the values and the knowledge of Western civilization. And he used that language, Western civilization, Christian values. This is what's being neglected. This is what we need to focus on more with our curriculum. And so when I was reading what you wrote, I'm trying to kind of relate it to that. And I noticed that one thing that you said was, well, if we focus, I mean, because that would kind of sort of correspond to the Plato's conception of the purpose of education, where it's about learning about knowledge. I mean, it's different, I guess, because they're talking about seeking truth for the sake of, you know, knowledge and 
this is kind of more about, you know, a particular body of knowledge that is, you know, the best and most valid. But you were saying that you're, by focusing on the cognitive tools rather than, I guess, content maybe, and particular things that we want students to know, that would kind of guard against a more elitist, maybe conservative curriculum being the focus of what we're teaching. So I, yeah, I guess I was just wondering what is, do you, when I was looking at the cognitive tools, I'm thinking, are these, do these have, you know, a history? Are they, I mean, they are like, they have a history, they have cultural content and they come from a particular philosophical framework rather than being these kind of neutral universal tools that, you know, every single human throughout history has used. Right. Yeah. So I guess my question is about how how do you guard against that at becoming kind of this dogma of, you know, this is the best, most valid form of knowledge when, you know, you you are probably operating within I mean, you are operating within a Western framework and philosophical framework. And a lot of what you say, you know, this is culturally the best tools that we have available to us. Yet I'm wondering if teachers just run with that, maybe they're gonna be neglecting you know, other philosophical frameworks from different cultures or getting, I guess, yeah, caught up in this idea that the ideas that Western cultures have a superior. Does that make sense? <laughs> Sorry, that was a very long question. Yeah, no, that's a very, very well articulated problem, which I, you know, as you can imagine, writing the stuff <clears throat> one has to deal with so that you, you have a particular audience and you're writing in English. So what, what I've tried to do is not so much relate the, the tools to uh, particular content, even though they come out of the content. That is, these aren't separate things. <clears throat> you don't get tools of, of being able to make effective discriminations in literature without reading a lot of liter literature. You know, you've, so the, these are not separate things. They're tied up together in complicated ways. But the writing for a particular group, I try to, which is why I try to relate them to development of language. So it's specific linguistic developments that each of the sets of tools is tied to. So theoretic understanding is not um, a privileged Western way of thinking, though it's tied, out, tied to certain forms of language that have developed in the Western tradition and have not developed in certain other traditions. So that there is a sense that in a complicated way, but necessarily in which it is tied to a particular kind of culture that delivers these forms of understanding. So there's no getting away from that part of it. And there's no getting away from, therefore, making value judgment. You have to say some things are better than others. Not everything that everybody says is equally valid. Some stuff is rubbish. Some stuff is sensible. Some stuff is a complicated mix of the two. And what we're looking for are the, to provide individual children with the tools to be able to best make sense of that for themselves in their circumstances. So there's no, there's no ideological loading to imaginative education. What there is simply is a toolkit to help everybody as far as possible make best sense of what they're having to deal with. So you can use philosophic understanding in any different context. So there's no, there's no privileged conclusions to be, to be drawn from it. What is privileged are the toolkits themselves. And the fact that they are tied to a particular past that no doubt shapes them and influences them, 
but we can try to separate out that particular past influence to give us a clearer sense, a more precise sense of what the actual tool is and what it can enable you to do. Sorry, that's a bit of a messy answer. Yeah, a messy answer to a messy question. So I guess that makes sense. Okay, good deal. I think, so I would, could I ask just for a bit of clarification? So who decides which tools are the most valid and useful? Because, you know, there's particular ones that you've listed as things that you think are useful. Yeah, what should be the process? Or do you think there should be more of a focus on saying, well, you know, these tools come from these particular places? Uh, yeah, because I'm not sure whether you can really separate because you're saying we should just look at the tools as these neutral human artifacts rather than seeing them as historically, culturally located. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, I, and I, I don't know the answer. I think there are problems with them and, and they're not a very well articulated set, you know. We've got, we've got a list of them and they're not all equivalent. So it's, it's a good question, problematic one. There is no simple answer because we can't make them culture totally culture neutral and consequently value neutral but i have tried in describing them to keep them as, as clean as possible by relating them to language developments that are fairly universal yeah i mean that might be something interesting to hear from other people you know because that's a big question that i often have you know what am i teaching why am i teaching this where does it come from what are the implications of teaching one thing over another yeah, is that how have maybe other people grappled with that in their classrooms? You want to address that one, Julian? I could just throw in something before Clayton or Krista if they want to. These tools don't exist just on their own. They're, they only work when they're tied up with knowledge. And we can say we don't make choices in our classroom, but we do make choices about what we teach. So the thing about imaginative education for me is there... He, Kieran may have identified tools that have come along with cultures that have developed oral language and written language and philosophical language, but those are this, that is the context in which you are teaching now. So thinking about using the tools that have, have historical value, there's no, there's nothing to say you can't use it with as varied and as wide a, a knowledge base as possible. You are feeding the imagination. So truthfully, the broader and the wider the, the forms of knowledge and understanding, the better. Because this is about the tool, not the knowledge we're tying them up with. Does that make sense? So it's really acknowledging that we do make choices and that these are tools that, for the students in your classroom that speak and read, are going to be helpful for their learning. But you could study other forms of knowing and being using these tools. All right, Krista, you are going to comment on this question. Choosing the tools that, that work for you best is how you should start your, is the tool that works for you best. I always start with narrative. I always start with heroic quality. Those are the ones that work best for me. So be selfish. Be, teach the way you want to learn. For other people, the best tool is extremes, right? It, it, it depends on you. Cool. All right. So probably one of the best one of the best known approaches to imaginative ed is through lid or learning in depth. I'd really love for for someone it could be Clayton, Kieran, or Krista to tell us a little bit about what lid is and and what it looks like in a, in a school in a classroom. Well, I'm not sure it's the best way to get into imaginative education because it's a slightly anomalous program within 
Well, but it's very simple. One of the things you learn quickly if you are trying to engage the imagination is the more people know, the more easy it is to be imaginative about something. One of our problems is that we have lots of kids in our classrooms who don't seem to know a lot. And one of the concerns is to try to work out some way to ensure that everybody knows a lot about something, at least. Because if you don't know something in depth, you really don't have a feeling for the nature of knowledge itself. So there's something fundamental missing. So LID was just a program designed to ensure that every kid becomes an expert on something. And it's a simple thing. You, the ideal is that the child starts school and is given a topic, you know, apples, the circus, railroads, etc. And they study that topic maybe for one hour a week for the full time of their schooling. So by the time they finish grade 12 in North American terms, they are an expert on apples or circuses or railroad or whatever it is they study. And anyway, that's the basic outline. It's very simple. The impact is enormous, both on the kids and their engagement, and after a few years on the school itself. How, how, how much time does this LID take up? An hour a week. And, and something that's quite different between LID and other, for example, inquiry or student-directed projects is that, one, the topics are predefined, and two, students are given the topics rather than selecting themselves. Would you like to comment on either of them? We give them... For very little children, they're given because we find that the, they will not choose topics that have many of the qualities that, that are required for them to be interested in them when they're 15 as well as at five. So, and we have simply found that it works better to allot the topics for very young children. The older they get, the greater the amount. The older they are when they start the program, the greater the amount of choice we find works. It's purely pragmatic. And, and what age groups is LID appropriate for? Like. If, if I've got students in year 10, is it too late to start LID, for example? No. Uh, at the moment in North America, somewhere, somebody is starting it at every grade level. In Australia, strangely enough, Australia is the place more than anywhere else that I know where there are quite a lot of LID programs going. The teachers also start a LID project themselves in many, many of the schools. I think Trinity and Sydney was one of the first that started doing this, but, uh, but oddly enough, many of the schools that we found in Australia, the teachers take it on. So, and because they find you know, a bit less time on Facebook and a bit more time on learning something in depth, actually is good for them and they enjoy it more. Cool. Clayton and Krista, are either of you running LID in your schools? Yeah, Krista's doing a better job of it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of just trying it out for the second year in a row. And it's been an enjoyable time. And I've got to say, it really, if you were thinking of using the cognitive tools and you didn't know how to get started with cognitive tools, the lid, doing learning in depth is, you can't escape it. Like you have to teach it through the cognitive tools. And it's a chance for the students to really be transparent with using those while they're learning about their topics. You know, and it's just fun, right? Like, come on, like it's fun. Everything should be fun, ish, in in an enjoyable sense, right? As Dr. Egan said, we're all they're all bored. So, <laughs> I didn't say that. They're yeah. all bored. That's not an accurate description. Yeah. <laughs> I've been doing it at my school for seven years, I guess. Wow. And it started out with just me, and then of course the neighbor and said, "What are you doing?" And so then it was to her and I, and then the neighbor downstairs said, hey, what are you doing? And then it was the three of us, and then it was five, 
Then it was 13 classes, and now it's everybody right now except the kindergarten, but we'll get them in January this month. So at the moment, every single student minus the, the kindergarten, so that's, that's 500, that's almost 600 kids have a lid topic in my school, which also means the high school across the way has a bunch of kids with lid topics in them as well. And the first two years, is, it's tricky, right? You don't see... You haven't seen yet, Clayton, what I see now, which is kids in grade 12 coming back to tell me all about how they were doing this project and their lid topic. Nobody knows why they're such experts in coral, right? And the idea of becoming the expert in something in the classroom for a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a 12-year-old is pretty exciting. Knowing more than the teacher about something is pretty exciting for them. We had a little trouble with space. So we had to sort of tweak it a bit. But at one point, I had 200 kids in the gym, just me, 200 kids, uh, an hour a week. And I call it heads down, bums up work because they were all in little groups working really hard. Kids from grade one to grade seven, having meaningful discussions to, with each other about mollusks and railroads and how they're connected. Right. Mm. And because of the engagement, because we use the tools, the behavior issues go way down. So it would be challenging for me to manage 200 kids in that gym on my own if they weren't engaged, if they weren't really focused on what they were doing. Give yourself a lid topic. Pick it out That's of the smart. hat. No smart. changing, no changing. <laughs> Do you, did you want to say something, Kieran, there? Oh, I, I was just going to follow up on the question you'd asked Julian earlier about how extensive learning in depth is. Because I've just come back from Italy and Poland. Where in Italy we had six, how many, 624 children start lid programs, and in Poland a whole bunch, and there will be another thousand starting in September, and in Poland a whole bunch of others. And it's now in about, as far as I can calculate, 22 different countries. So it's, it seems to be spreading slowly. I mean, it's not taking over the world yet, but if the, the trick is to get these things to the point where people take it for granted that that's a part of schooling. And that's going to be some significant time if it ever happens. And I should have mentioned also that the, just in terms of that, that the educated mind has been translated into 10 different languages, give you a sense of, uh, again, the, the extent of interest and learning in depth has been translated into now six languages. So there's a fair amount of general interest and people are doing things out, which we know nothing about, but clearly there's things happening uh, around the galaxy. Just a quick question on this. Do you, as the topics are in, in many ways set, Krista, perhaps you can answer this one. Do, do you get students from younger years perhaps talking to students from older years who have the same topic? Absolutely. A librarian and I have just wrote a little thing together about lid and community in, at KB Woodward Elementary and how that exact thing is happening. The little kid knows that that grade seven has the same topic as him. And they talk about it. But grade 10, who comes back to, high, back to the elementary school to visit, I say, hey, this is so-and-so, and his topic is castles. And we talk about it together. All the staff have a topic. The parents come in asking for topics. I mean, the, really? there is community there. Wow. <laughs> there is community. And in the staff room, we all talk about it together. What's your lid topic? And, you know, it, it just, it's, it's taken time, but I think we're finally at that edge where it is mm. becoming a norm. Why don't we have a, why don't we have lid topics yet, Mrs. Rawling? Well, because it's September the 1st. <laughs> You'll get them. Don't worry. That's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, I was just wondering with the lid topics, because it sounds like from what you said earlier, you might be at a school that might be a bit under-resourced. That was the impression that I got. And I'm definitely at one of those schools. So as soon as I heard about this idea, I was thinking that would be so difficult to to set up because you've got just a limited amount of books that are actually relevant and in date and accessible and a very limited amount of computers that can be used. Do you have any tips about how to make sure students can access the right resources to learn about their topics? So actually we are inner city and our school, we write a lot of grants. So we actually have a lot of technology but we have to earn them, right? But in terms of technology and things like that, you don't have to have access to laptops or iPads in the classroom to have meaningful discussions about things. For example, Tuesday, I give the kids a job, okay? And this week, their job is to find out about a scientist who studies their topic. They go home all week. They ask their parents about it. They talk to people they know about it. And then they come in the next Tuesday and we have a discussion about what they found out. It could be as simple as that. Then later in the week, we meet with a grade two class in the library, and we don't even actually touch books. The kids just sit together and discuss what they learned at home that week. So it doesn't have to be, I don't have iPads in my classroom, I can't do it. And right? if I can comment on that, I kind of researched last year into a little bit I gave them iPads and I found I was really struggling with the fact that it's quite a skill to be able to use keyword searches and to go through and really find carefully information about a topic. It's a really waste of brain power to try and think of. I had a girl who was writing, she had teeth and she was writing down furiously something about Minecraft bats. And I said, why are you writing that down? And she said, I typed in teeth and it came up. I was like, oh man, that's really rough. So I found for myself, just a book is a great place to start with. And all students have access to at least the public library. And all the information is really concisely put into headings for each title of the book. So I find that's a much easier accessible place to get started with. So in, so in terms of like, if teachers are here thinking, wow, Lid sounds fantastic. How do I start this in my classroom? Is the ImagineEd website the best place to start? Or are, are there some other really good resources that people should check out? Or where should we start? If you go to the ImagineEd website, you'll also find a link to the LID website. So there's a website there that has lots of resources. We had to take some stuff off because the publisher of our LID kit didn't want everything to be free. So, but we do have a LID kit, which we're selling for 50 bucks. It initially came out at $200. But that is a terrific resource. But you don't need any of that. I think as Krista's suggesting, it's just as long as you understand the idea, you can make it work. The lid kit does help. We've got two in our school. I mean, you can just start. And we did start without a lid kit. We did it for a few years without a lid kit. But it has these great um, tr uh, cards in it, like playing cards, with ideas on this week's assignment, right? Find a metaphor that has something to do with your topic. Pretend your neighbor is that topic and interview that neighbor or things like that. And then... That's just an idea to just ideas to get you flowing. It would be nice to have one in a school anyway to share, but you can do it without it. You just need to use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> a question I had for everyone was, what are some of the biggest misconceptions? And Julian kind of alluded to this before, but from the rest of you, what are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about imaginative education? 
uh, two things. One is that it's too hard to start in my classroom. And the other end of it is, oh, you don't do anything in there. You're just airy-fairy playing all day long, neither of which is true. It is rigorous work for the students to think in these ways, and, and they eat it up, right? And also, if you start with just one tool, you don't have to change your whole practice. Just start with one tool and implement it and go from there. Fantastic. Clayton? Yeah, and it's also, I found for myself, it challenges what I think that the students can do. I'm under the impression somehow that they can't create a role play or a song about the multiplication tables, but I'm always really impressed at the kind of things that students are able to do when they're given tools like this and how challenging such a simple task that you ask them to do can be when you're not asking them to do something like fill in the close procedure. No? Cool. Let's, let's move into these final questions. So as a wrap up, we usually have three similar questions. So I'd love to pose them to you guys. What advice would you give to your first year teacher self? Just what I said, choose one tool and jump into it. Choose a lesson that, that bombs every year that you can't stand teaching, that you wait till the very last second to teach it and include one of the imaginative tools in there and see how it goes from there. You'll be surprised. Clayton? Just the things that you think are working are worth pursuing. Mm. What do you mean by that? Just, I feel like, you know, in the first few years I was cheating. If I was doing something enjoyable, like using <laughs> some sort of jokes and humor, and the students think they are, they're like, Mr. Stevens, we're cheating because we're doing the, the song. We're learning it through a song, so we're cheating. And it's like, yeah, I guess, but, you know, it works. So, yeah. So enjoy the things that are cheat, I guess. Kieran, are you back with us? Hello. Ah, oh, you're back. A question, a question you just missed was, what, what's the biggest misconception people have about, about your work and about uh, imaginative education? I have no idea. I really don't. I think mainly... I think mainly it's because people have difficulty even taking in a category of a different theory. Because in a sense, in the Western world, progressivism as a set of ideas about education has become so dominant that people can't think outside it almost. So that somebody like Piaget or my good friend Howard Gardner are immensely successful because their ideas fit straight into an ideology that currently dominates educational thinking. Something like imaginative education is a problem because even though there are some features that seem to fit, like the cognitive tools and imagination, on the whole, people don't understand how it's tied to a, a different conception of education. And I think I, maybe that's the, the most difficult part, getting beyond the, the surface stuff to the fact that this is simply a different way to think about what education is all about. That makes a lot of sense. And the question we just asked the others was, what advice would you give to your first-year researcher self? <laughs> it's too long ago. I can't remember. <laughs> I started making notes on the questions, but I didn't really have one for that. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's not something that some of your graduate students come back and say, gee, Kieran, I'm glad that you, taught, that you taught me this thing or you gave me this bit of advice early on? No, they mostly remember the jokes. 
Good stuff. All right. The next question is for each of you, what, what is your information diet? What's the kind of stuff that tapping into on a regular basis really keeps you going? And this could be, include things like who do you follow on Twitter or what email lists are you signed up to and things like that? Krista. Uh, not a lot. I have a Twitter account, but I tried to get into it and I don't even, it's been so long. I have, I don't even remember the password. <laughs> Jillian's blog, Imagine Ed for sure. And for a while there, we were running a, a network for imaginative education teachers that would get together once a term and, and just sit around and do what we're doing right now and talk about our practice. And, and that, that connection was a, a great a tool for all of us because at the time we were a bit lonely and no one in our school kind of understood what we were doing so my advice would be to find a group like you have yourself here who are interested in the same kind of thing and just talk just talk Clayton yeah have some critical friends that you can talk to about your practice and that you're friendly with for sure what I do to learn right now is I'm just watching things about my topic is my thing that I can do. I'm reading a lot of poetry, that type of stuff. You know, just try to be connected with the other teachers in the classrooms, in the schools, getting people involved. Talking about something is the easiest way to remain connected with something and to learn about it. That's fantastic. Yeah, Krista, you waved. I have one more. I have one more. <laughs> Inviting other teachers into your room or going to visit them. Clayton's come to see my classroom. I haven't, said, I haven't gone to your classroom yet, Clayton. <laughs> You don't but, want to come there. Yeah, yeah. But it, going to and seeing practice from other people's point of view is huge. Mm-hmm. Kieran, what's your information diet like? Who, who, who do you particularly like reading? Do you follow anyone on Twitter? And are you signed up to any email lists? No, 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 and no. If Clayton's interested in reading poetry, I write poetry. That's I'm retired, so I'm mostly I'm a professional poet. I write poems and publish them around the place. So I read lots of other poems. Who? By my side here, I have Peter Porter, good Australian, Alan Jenkins, A.E. Stallings, Alice Oswald, for example. Alice Oswald, I recommend to everybody. So that's what I'm doing. And then, of course, it's nice. I love to talk to people who are, you know, members of our research group. And uh, it's nice to go places. They are, you know, I travel a lot and like to meet people, uh, many good friends in Australia. Cool. So primarily a poet and writing education theory on the side. No, the other way around. Somebody who's stopped writing and talking and thinking about education and is writing poetry instead. Got it, got it. I did have one specific question for you, Kieran, in relation to this. You mentioned how your work builds on that of Vygotsky's quite a lot. And, and a term we hear thrown around a lot in Australia is, for example, zone of proximal development. You hear it pr- at pretty much every professional development session you go to, but I wonder how many people who actually use the phrase ZPD have any, ever read any of Vygotsky's work. So in line with that, I was wondering, is there any of Vygotsky's work that you would suggest people start with in order to get a, a good understanding of what, what he was all about? I mean, just to correct the first thing about it being built on Vygotsky's work, the first time I wrote a book about this was called Educational Development, published by Oxford University Press in God help us, 1979, in which you'll see Vygotsky's name is not mentioned. I didn't discover Vygotsky until quite a bit later, but I found his ideas about cognitive tools very interesting. Indeed, as you have said, ZOPED, zones of proximal development, are the great topic from Vygotsky that one sees everywhere. And again, I think that's only because that fits in with the progressivist ideology. It's one of the things that looks as though 
It's like a piece of more efficient ways of teaching, helping kids learn. And it is indeed, at least it alerts people to something about children that maybe they wouldn't otherwise notice and make, makes the teaching more efficient. But it seems to me a very peripheral feature of Vygotsky's work. I mean, he's much more, I mean, the, the thing that I found most interesting from Vygotsky is, um, well, the whole notion of how, you know, we are, we are animals embedded in a society. And if you want to understand any feature of what we do, how we talk, how we think, then you have to understand that historical and social and cultural context in which all this happens. And I think uh, that makes his work very rich in a way that is, in my experience, not at all true for most of the things I read in education, which take for granted a whole array of ideological notions that seem to me often very questionable. So is there one of Vygotsky's books that you would first recommend, or are there any modern summaries of his work and thinking that you'd recommend? Actually, some of the best things currently, uh, the easy way into Vygotsky, I think, is through Wersch's work. Uh, e, what's his name? Gosh, I know him quite well. <laughs> Wersch, W-E-R-S-C-H. He has written a few books about Vygotsky, Voices in the Mind, things like this, that, that I think are some of the nicest ways to get a really good grasp of Vygotsky's work from a North American, in his case, context, but somebody who actually does make sense of the, the Russian background and does a good job. Right. Thanks for that. I'll make sure I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So the final question, this is one for Gillian. Do you have any final calls to action, anything you'd like listeners to go away and do after listening to this podcast? And also, what are you hoping for the future of Imaginate? Imaginate was created two years ago, a blog so that I could get more voices of imaginative educators out there. And so I wanted to become an international hub for showcasing imaginative practices, for talking about imagination's role in education, for correcting all of the misunderstandings out there about what imagination means. I want to have it grow. And so I'd love for you all to share your imaginative practices. We need people in Australia to get the word out that there's a place you can go where your maybe non-traditional practices are actually very valuable and we have a lot of support for what you're doing and, and why it's working. So I'd like to broaden the conversation. We have an online program at SFU, so there's ways for people in Australia to study with us in the IERG. And that's basically my hope. I'd like the Imagined to be a source for showcasing, but also expanding, learning, deepening, having webinars, because it's only going to develop and expand if people, educators, participate. That's my hope. Hi, Gillian. It's Ed here. I'm just wondering, I'm the person who bugs you on Twitter all the time, too, by the way. Oh, Ed! Yeah. Oh, hi! <laughs> That's me. Virtual hug! Thank you. <laughs> Hello. I was just wondering... If you could comment on the progress of the IE movement, like I know you guys are in Canada, but have you moved into North America or have you moved into Europe? Oh, and yeah. could you comment on how the movement is going generally, please? Sure. Well, Kieran, the theory itself has been developing for many years and the, the website was kind of created in 2001. And it had, when I became one of the directors, you know, it had about 6,000 6, members worldwide on sort of the listserv thing. But for me, I've been really able to notice because I've actively been involved in social media, I've been noticing where the people 
are that are asking me the questions, where the people are that are participating in our live chat. We run a live chat. So I'm really pleased that in, in the ImagineEd community, there's maybe 1,200 people subscribe to the weekly sharing of information. I'm getting more and more requests to share on the site from people on Europe. South America is a large representation, definitely throughout the United States. Fewer in Asia. Now, having said that, I think that's a bit of a language barrier because we do have colleagues in Taiwan, Singapore, China that are all that are doing imaginative education. It's just the the, the English imagined blog isn't the best place for them to share their practice. And I found that the Twitter community has really been fantastic. So I have a pretty large following there, and I try to always and only tweet questions and conversation around imagination, in sometimes creativity, bringing it back to the word imagination. So I feel like we've made a lot of progress in the last two years when we've really been only now using social media to spread the word. We have a lot of programs too that teach teachers. And the thing about this fully online one is that it was our opportunity to engage people on the other side of the planet. And so I'm hoping we're running it now. And Clayton's one of the mentors in that program. I'm hoping we can run it again. All we need to run it again is numbers. So that that's another opportunity. Thanks, Julian. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for the question. It's good to meet you, Ed. And the final question for everyone at the end of this mammoth interview, do you have any final calls to action? Is there anything you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Krista. Oh, I think go and find the lid list and randomly pick yourself a lid topic and then find the grossest thing about that topic. Clayton. Just look at the imaginative ed blog and just take a look through it just to take some time or join one of the Twitter conversations if you have the time. Good advice. And Kieran? Yeah, I, I agree with both of the ones that have been given so far. I think that's a good, good piece of advice. I can't think of anything else. I look at the websites, just troll through them. Because we have a number of other programs. You know, you've talked about learning in depth. There's another one called Whole School Projects, which a number of schools have taken on, and, a, and there's a literacy program and history, etc. So I want to look around and see what's available. Okay. Speaking of things that are available, Clayton, do you have a book? No, I was sorry. I was joking. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just pretending to be Kieran saying, buy my book. I'm oh, sorry. Yes. I was joking. That's I'm okay. Sorry. It was it was a great joke. It was an inside joke for the people looking, not for the listeners. That's I'm okay. Well, I've, I've committed a faux pas and shared it. But I, I would like to say that, and I guess that's a good way for us to wrap up. Obviously, I, I alluded to it before, Kieran, your book has had a big impact upon the way I think about education, but uh, as well about the way I think about my own life and the way I make sense of the world. So I'd really like to thank you, thank you for that. And sure, you, it's not as good as Clayton's book's going to be. As, as Clayton's book, yeah. So we're all hanging out for that one. <laughs> all right. So Julian, Kieran, Krista and Clayton, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a very big interview. You've been very patient and very giving with your time. And it's the, the first time we've had more than one guest on. So that's exciting as well. Thanks for sharing all about your work. And we look forward to following the work of imaginative education in the future. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you for having us. See you again. Bye now. Oh, yes. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast on imaginative education. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. 
If you've really been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. If you're an ongoing listener, a fan of the ERRR and value it as a professional learning resource, a one-off or monthly donation would help me to cover the costs of room hire and sound engineering and help the podcast to be more sustainable in the long term. Check out patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. 